Thank you, Mark and Patty. The secret is out. Mark plays the guitar. What an awesome song, and it so appropriately fits into our passage. When our world is shaken, heaven stands, because in our passage this morning, you're going to see an Apostle Paul and hear the words of an Apostle Paul that you may have never heard before to this extent. We are in the book of 2 Corinthians, and last week you learned that there were four letters to the Corinthians, at least three, likely four, but we are in the second inspired letter to the Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, more than any of the other apostles, was very prolific. He wrote letters to the churches. This is because in obedience to the Great Commission, he went out to make disciples, to teach them the commands of God and to teach them how to observe those commands of God. And so Paul, as he planted churches and as he evangelized and edified the saints, he stayed in close contact with them, as close as you could uh, with their methods of communication in that day. They wrote letters back and forth, not just to this church, but to other churches. They sent messengers. He's sending Timothy here, Titus there. They're, they're keeping tabs on one another. And so Paul is writing this letter to this church, this young church of Corinth that he planted years ago. I, I don't know that we always think about the, uh, the epistles or the letters, the New Testament letters in this way. A lot of times we look at the Bible as in, from a doctrinal perspective and, and expect to hear information or facts about God. And the Bible is doctrinal. But if you think about it, the letters that these apostles wrote is doctrine applied. Because when we study this book, we're looking at real people with real life situations. What does it mean to be a believer? And based on what you're saying about God, Paul, and what you're teaching me, this beautiful doctrine that I need to know, how does that apply to my life? And each church and the believers in the church had different struggles. You know, the Corinthians had, they all had similar struggles, but there were unique struggles that they faced. The Corinthian church plant was in the midst of a very, very sexually immoral culture. And so Paul would address those issues. Now, some struggled with falling away. Paul would address those issues with that particular church family. So keep in mind as we look at these, these um, books, these epistles, these letters, it's not, we're not just getting facts about God. We are learning real life situations from people who had to strive with the same things that we strive with. What does it look like to apply this truth in my life based on what I'm experiencing in my day and time. So they're very, very practical. And then the Apostle Paul in this particular passage is going to even share his own heart and what it looked like for him to wrestle with a, a season of his Christian walk that was very, very difficult. So we get to know God. We get to know how to glorify God by reading these epistles. You know, the Corinthians, like all of us, they did some things right. Paul would praise the things that they did right. And they did some things wrong. And so Paul was forced to chastise them. And so that's how God uses his word in our lives. And I pray that we would hear exactly 
what God wants us to hear this morning in His holy word, His revealed word, as we behold our God. Well, the last time, the verses before this, and we're going to start with verse 8, but Paul ironically couldn't say enough good things or think enough good thoughts about God. He said, blessed is the name of the Lord. God be blessed. Think highly of him. Speak highly of him. And what's so ironic about that is this is coming out of a time in his life where he had just suffered greatly. And yet out of his heart and mouth come tremendous gratitude because God met him in his suffering in a way that didn't only wasn't only merciful from the father of mercies, And didn't just comfort him in his need, but filled him so full of comfort that he was able to comfort others with the comfort that God comforted him with. Now, Paul is upbeat in this letter. And you think about that, and this kind of is going to help us understand the passage this morning. If you think about Paul's situation, we know that Paul suffered and we will look at He's going to give us details. He's going to purpose to give us details this morning. But the way that he came out of this very difficult trial in life with praise in his heart and on his lips can only come when you are a believer that understands the big picture of life, the big picture of God's mission. And that is that God is about bringing glory to God. That He uses all of his created things and people and beings to bring glory to himself. The reason I point that out is because when you go through a hard time like this and you think life is about you, then you come away not with praise, but you come away perhaps with bitterness. You come away, I've been shortchanged because life isn't supposed to work this way. And if you look at Paul's situation, you could say, this is, you have just been set back, Paul. You have lost so much. And he comes out of it with this, This excitement. No, I've just gained. I lost some worldly things. But in the big picture, you would not believe what I have gained. I just, I know God better than I did before I walked into this. He met me in a way that I didn't know he could meet me. And in the spiritual realm and in the big picture of glorifying God, this is a wonderful thing. God be praised. And because Paul is not finished in his letter talking about his sufferings, we're not finished talking about his sufferings. And we will continue to learn, as John Piper often puts it, how to suffer well. How to suffer well. Now, I want to see two things in this passage. First of all, the importance of setting our hope when it comes to conflicts and trials. The importance of setting our hope. Just like when you're fishing and you set that hook so you know that your catch is not going to get away. How do we set our hope? What does that look like? And then the importance of helping prayer. So let's read our text. 2 Corinthians, the very first chapter. Verses 8 through 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of all the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us on him. 
We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. When we introduced this book, we were informed that the Apostle Paul purposely shares his heart. And we see angles of this great apostle that we don't see in other books. And here he even he even purposes to share more details about what he experienced. He doesn't want them to be unaware. And there's times where details are important and there's times where details aren't important. You can cut right to the chase. But the Apostle Paul wants to dig a little deeper about this experience that he had so that those that hear it and can understand it will be greatly enriched. Maybe maybe they heard a little bits and pieces about what Paul experienced. But he wants them to know the true story or the real story of how his sufferings affected him. And I don't know for sure why, but I know for sure in my life that often the lower we get in life, the, the higher or the more we realize just how God lifts us up, how high God lifts us up. Sometimes we have to be way down here in order to understand the power of God and what God is capable of. So the Apostle Paul wants to explain this to the Corinthians. In in essence, he's saying, I don't want you to stay in the dark. I don't want you to be uninformed. What I have to tell you is important. They just perhaps didn't know the intense severity of what the apostle suffered. Now, we don't know exactly what situation he's talking about. The apostle Paul suffered so much throughout his Christian life. But we do know that it was likely in Asia Minor, probably maybe in Ephesus or around that area, because remember, he spent three years in Ephesus during that church plant. Uh, We know that the apostle was was um, his life was so jeopardized and he had so many enemies that um, Aquila and Priscilla said just to be his friend, just to minister with him. Our lives are in danger. So he's that kind of guy that you want to think twice about before you say I'm following in his footsteps because, you know, people were after him a lot. We know that whatever suffering he's talking about, it didn't happen until after first Corinthians was written because he doesn't say a word about it in his first letter to the Corinthians. So, he uses this phrase here. We don't want you to be unaware. He uses that six times in his letter. And it's basically saying that there's something, there's information that you need to have in order to have a complete or a whole understanding. You, you have to know this in order to completely understand the lesson or the teaching in order to completely be edified by what God is up to and what God is doing. It's it's an adequacy that they need to have. And they need to know that God is the God of the unbearable because that is where the Apostle Paul found himself. How unbearable of a situation did he find himself in? This description that he gives us he is saying that it was it was so bad. I was taken so low to this place where I physically was out of strength and I mentally was out of strength. He got to a place where, in other words, there was nothing left to give. Just don't have anything to give. Crushed 
to the point of depression. A term that we hear in something that we wrestle with in our lives too. Where the burdens of the world press in on us and we feel like I can't do, I know what the next right thing to do is, but I don't have the strength to do it. This is the state of mind that the apostle and his friends were in. He uses a plural there. And this is rare, I think, for Paul. We don't usually hear this from Paul. Paul's the upbeat guy. He's the, ener- the, the energetic guy. He's the guy that never runs out of grit, never runs out of courage. He just doesn't quit. He ran out of happy thoughts here. He was no longer able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And he's sharing this about himself. In such a way that he's saying, you need to know this. So we're getting the picture that it was that the form of suffering was so brutal that he came to the point that he was not going to walk out of it. He wasn't going to survive this one. He didn't have what it takes. I have nothing. From the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's the bull rider of Christians, right? This guy just, he, he doesn't quit. He's not afraid to die. He's not afraid to take hits for the kingdom of God. We already know he has endured much for Christ. This is the guy who's whose back has been beaten and bruised, black and blue from a rod, from lashings. This is a guy that has felt the pelting of stones, which are really rocks. When the Bible talks about being stoned to death, don't picture walking out into the the gravel driveway and picking up, what, number 57s. Not Not in Israel, in the Middle East. There are lots of rocks out there. The size of baseballs. You just you just take your pick. And he knows what it's like to feel to get hit in the head and from head to toe with rocks until his body is bloody. So bloody he is left for dead. This guy has been left for get dead and he gets up and he keeps going. What are you doing? I thought you were dead. And he goes for the gospel. But he is at a point in his life right now where he does not see that. He doesn't feel it. He doesn't see it. There's no strength. There's no saliva. His will is gone. His grit has run out. And he's saying words that he has never uttered before. In essence, I lost this one. I lost this battle. I'm not getting up from this one. That word despair implies of course, anxiety and fear, but it means it's important. Utterly destitute of measures or resources. So you're, you're getting the idea that whatever resources were available to him in other times, whether it was from his own physiology, his own will, his own faith, his own hope, whether it was the encouragement of others, whatever was at hand in the other times, They are not present at this time. And that word comes um, from another Greek word that has the the root of poros, which means um, making a way or finding a way, a passageway. And when you put those two words together, 
you have run out of all resources and you do not see a way. You know, like in the movies when, when you're locked in, but then you hear the, the doorknob start to rattle, maybe a key bin, somebody's come to save me, or it's completely dark, and, but finally this little ray of light breaks through the darkness. He is saying, no, it doesn't matter what direction I look in, my situation, nobody is coming. I am hopeless. In 2 Timothy, he explains himself. He realizes that a season of life that he saw coming. And he says, you know, I've poured my life out as a drink offering. I'm ready to die. I'm just ready to be in the arms of Christ. So he sensed it was coming. That's not, that's not the case in this passage. You get the idea that he didn't sense it was coming. He's surprised that he doesn't have what it takes to go. Have you ever felt like that, say, in one degree or another, whether it's physically or mentally or, or spiritually, where you are at the lowest and there, is, there are no resources as far as you are concerned? You think this is it. You're going to die. I've felt this way a few times in my life. Some of them are humorous. Um, but it was real to me. One of the first times I thought I was going to die, when I was just tall enough to make it on the Space Mountain ride at Disney World. And I got on that ride for the first time. Couldn't wait to get on it. I was sitting next to my sister. You're crammed in the cart and you... You, they, they pull the safety belt. And about midway on this ride, never had I experienced anything like it. I mean, you're in the dark. And you, you go way up and then you do free fall. And then jut to the right, jut to the left, whatever. And about the middle of the ride, I'm down on the floor. I have slipped out of my safety belt. I'm on the floor and I, I'm praying because I know I'm going to die. You just don't get on something that intense and walk away. It can't be the way it's supposed to be. And then there was another time, in my young mind, I thought I was going to die. Well, as an adult, I think it's probably been 10 years ago now, I had a similar experience at King's Dominion on the <laughs> the drop zone. Is that right, drop zone? Uh, well, I forget I went with some of you there, but um, some of the youth. And, yeah, I'm pretty, I like to be aware of my surroundings, and I'm checking things out, see what I'm getting myself into. And I'm not scared of rides, I like the thrill. And I'm watching other people do it. And I see as I'm in line, well, the treetops, okay, there's trees here in the landscape. They're about 30 feet based on the rate of that and the weight and the drop and so forth. When I'm coming down, if I see those treetops, I need to have already been stopped or I'm going to splat. So here I come down, my legs are up in the air because of the free fall. And I see the tops of the trees and I'm still at full speed. And the split second, I'm going to die. Wouldn't you know it, I'm the guy on the ride that, where it fails. I'm going to splat the ground. But fortunately, they had this crazy brake system. But we, we experienced, those are funny. Now, I, I did have a time, um, I have escaped, by God's grace, I have escaped death. But most of the time, I didn't really, um, it was just like automobile accidents and things like this. But one time, I was on my tractor when I was cleaning the property, clearing it up to build the house. And uh, I got hit by what's called a 
a widow maker for good reason. You're messing with trees and you don't know there's a huge limb or the top of a tree way up high is, is dead. And it's just waiting to drop on some dummy that shakes the tree beneath it. And so I was on my tractor and I was doing some work under these trees. And out of nowhere, all I know is that I got hit. I got clipped on the shoulder and it hit me right here in the back in my ribs. Um, and it knocked me off the tractor. And I couldn't catch my breath. I was in intense pain. And at that second, I'm laying on the ground by myself, kind of out in the woods. And I'm thinking, this, this is it. Um, and... Whew, uh, you know, my wife and my kids flashed before my eyes. I'm thinking, huh, we didn't even get to say goodbye. And then, huh, and then I took a breath and I was like, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I know that there are people out here that you have been way closer to death than I have. And that's your real life experience. And some of you have even been at the hospital in the best hands ever. And they say, well, we can't do anything for you. And you have walked away and things like that. This stuff happens to us. It can be a real experience for us. The things that we face. And Paul is experiencing this. And it is bad. And then he goes into a little more description in case we don't understand how severe this was. And in verse 9, he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That phraseology is used only here. And it's an official term. It's a legal term. And what it means is a, an official certificate of death. So whatever his circumstances are, he is thinking to himself, in the heavens, God has made the decision that this is my time. He has handed me an official certificate of death. The Grim Reaper. It's official. That's what he does not want them to be unaware of. Then, he makes application. You don't always get this kind of straightforward application. But there's a reason for going into such detail. For him. And now we find it. Now we hear it. It's a timeless spiritual truth that God's children must know in our lives of discipleship. And it just gets gut level honest. And here it is, again in verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And I, I read that and I thought, did you just say that? Because that, that pushes on my theology. You have to understand what he's saying here. Because he is saying, I have never been brought this low. I was handed a certificate of death. My mind had played out. Everything about me had played out. But there was a reason for it. This, this is anguish. 
I was brought to this point of anguish, but there's a reason for it. And it was so that I would not trust in myself. Now, we just have to immediately ask the question in our theology, our understanding of God. Are you telling me that to to take up your cross and follow Christ may mean that he will bring us to these points, different degrees. Maybe not everybody that bad, but still, it, it's, it's bad for us. It's anguish for us, whatever it is. Are you saying that he will enable us or allow us to go through these things simply, at least one of the reasons, so that I will rely on him and not myself? Wow. That is hard. I mean, are are there other ways that we could be taught that lesson? Can't you just bless me so abundantly that my heart is so filled with praise I wouldn't even think about trusting in myself? Apparently, that doesn't always work. This is just one way here. There are other ways God has, other tools in His toolbox, but I almost can't believe this sometimes. But that's because of the way I often wrongly think about God when I lose the big picture that life is not ultimately about me, but about me bringing glory to God. And if that means by God's sovereign grace, suffering to even this extent, if it will break through to a spiritual advancement of sanctification where a heart is changed and now bring God more glory. Yes, this is fair game. It's good. It's holy. It's right. It's God at work in his people. Is this where we are today? We have so many resources, do we not? A lot of us are physically fit. I mean, there's times when if you're physically fit, you trust in the resources you have. You know, you, 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 there's times when I, when I was younger, I'd be up on a roof. I wasn't scared of falling. I just, I'll find something to grab hold of. One time, Jack Allen was telling a story about he was up on a roof. He starts sliding down and he caught the little head of the screw with his pinky. He was a fit guy. And we, we rely on the things that we have in abundance. Or there's nothing like your quick wit or your cognitive ability to get you out of a fix. You, it's, you've done it hundreds of times. Other people get caught, but not you. You're too smart for it. It's a resource that you depend on. And it's a God-given gift. And it's a good thing. Or perhaps your abundance of riches. You know, it doesn't matter what happens in the stock market. I have such stock market. I have such an abundance of riches that I am set. I've got this resource that's going to carry me through whatever happens. And so these gifts of God, these very good things that come in handy and that God uses are wonderful but they also can cause a spiritual problem whereby we are actually, maybe not even knowing it, trusting in them to get us through. When life is all about putting faith in God Almighty, 
So God will bring us to places where we look for that go-to resource to get us out of something, and it's not there. Not so that we, we, we live miserably, but so that He sets us free from things that are not reliable, from things that do run out, so that we set our hope in the resource that never runs dry, that always acts according to His glorious nature of goodness and kindness and mercy for our good and for His glory. It's a hard thing to learn, but it's a necessary thing for us to learn. He needs nothing. God is God. Sometimes it's at the end of our strength where we really start to get to know God like we need to. And if we haven't reached a point of discipleship like that, we may never know that truth. God doesn't need what Paul needs to work. And I think that's what's so excited, Paul's so excited about it. Because he's like, you know, to serve God, when it gets right down to it, I don't have to have anything. I can run out of absolutely everything power that I have and I can still serve God and bring glory to God because it's not about me. He never runs out. If I would just learn to trust him. He doesn't need when it gets down to it. He doesn't need our grit. He doesn't need our determination. He doesn't need our Rocky Balboa comeback our Rocky five comeback. He is God. And there is no other. When we studied in Sunday school, Corky brought us through the, that little minor prophet of Habakkuk. God taught him a very similar lesson because the Israelites were, were just in a bad way. They're sinning against, sinning against God, but other neighbors and nations or so forth, they're bullying them, they're picking on them. And Habakkuk, as anybody else would do, is praying for revival. God, help us, deliver us, revive us. And he doesn't get the response from God that he was thinking, you know, this is the way life goes. This is the way, this is what it means to be your people. We mess up. We cry to you. You save us. And we go through this cycle. And God gives him some different information. And he says, actually, I'm not going to revive you at this time, but I'm going to judge you. And not only am I going to judge you, but I'm going to judge you with the use of a nation that is even worse than you are. They are even more immoral than you are. And Habakkuk really struggles with this because it doesn't seem fair or right. I mean, at least at least use a, a tool of chastisement that is more righteous than we are. But to use the people that we despise, that we call immoral, to judge us? Ouch. And what was the final message of that? The just shall live by faith. It's not by sight. It's by faith. It's not by the resources. So Habakkuk winds up saying in chapter 3, though the fig tree should not blossom. In other words, when life doesn't go like we think it should go, when God doesn't behave like we think he should behave, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, 
and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. There's all the resources, they're gone. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. God's saying, trust me, my ways are higher than your ways. To be my child does not mean every path is smooth. Trust me. So when we think life isn't going the way that I thought I signed up for it to go when I confessed you as Christ. It's going in a different direction. Kingdom principle is we need to trust God and not rely on our own mental abilities or the things that we see or the resources. But when you look for sun and you get rain, trust God. When you look for riches and you get poverty, trust God. When you when, when all you want is love and you get hate, trust God. When all you want is just one good thing after another and one bad thing after another happens, trust God. Trust God. The apostle gets it. Habakkuk gets it. Hard lesson to learn. But when we learn it, when I can trust God, no matter what I think I see, even against my own emotions, my own sense of justice, that brings glory to God. I grew up um, as a kid. I spent my summers at the community pool, the Glendon pool, our little town of Glendon. And... uh, I either rode my bike or walked. It was it was about a mile or so away. So anyway, that was the big thing is to go swimming. And every year I would take swimming lessons. That's just what you did. You got you started in the peewees and then you got a little older and a little stronger and you learned new skills. And I had gotten to the point where it was time to advance into um, becoming a lifeguard and learn those skills to be a strong swimmer. I never did become a lifeguard, but I did go through the... Uh, the lessons and so forth. And one of the things, and many of you would know this, it's one of the important things you need to know about being a successful lifeguard where you actually save lives is that you can't just rush out when you see somebody drowning and they're slapping the water. And yes, it's a real thing. You don't just immediately rush out and grab them and swim them to safety. The first thing you have to do is you have to make sure they're willing to put their hands into yours, to put their life into yours. Because when you go out there and they are filled with anxiety and fear, they will use you as a buoy. And they can kill you and people have died in an effort to save lives. So what do you do? If they're insistent and they're frantic, you know what you got to do? You got to wait for them to fight and fight and fight and slap the water and kick and grab at you. And finally, when they give up the fight, then you can take them to safety. And here's the Apostle Paul. Given everything he had to make it out of this time of anguish. And when he gave up and realized it's over, who comes in 
to lift him up. But God. And he is excited to share this kingdom principle with the saints of God. Trust God. He says, not only did he deliver me back there, but he will deliver us in our present situations according to his will and wisdom. And he will deliver us in the future situations. That is faith. That is love. And that brings God glory. On him we have set her hope. And I hope and pray that God is using his word as he reveals himself to his people this morning. That we are saying, yes, I need to do that. I need to make sure my hope is set in God and God alone. And then briefly, the second principle here is that the importance of helping prayer. Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So another benefit of suffering, another benefit of going through trials is to allow us to realize the the need and the importance of a praying body or just prayer in general. Now, we know what prayer is. We hear about prayer all the time. You can't escape that word prayer if you're a Christian. If you said your prayers, what are you praying, so forth. I don't know that I've ever seen prayer stated like this, in, in, in this way. Because we, we know, yeah, you got to pray. But Paul's saying, help me. Help me. In your prayers. We, we think about helping people. But we don't always realize how significant and powerful that we can help one another simply by prayer. It's a kingdom tool. More practical than we think. And we're often glad to offer physical help because you get immediate um, results and gratification. We'll help each other out in the garden, maybe. We'll, we'll help each other fixing a car. you got skills I don't have. We'll help. Could you help me lift this furniture? It's too much for me to do by myself. I need your help. And it's invigorating to see this in the physical realm. And yet, Paul sees it in the spiritual realm. He sees that you, he, he doesn't even say come directly to me. To me, he said, go to God first. Help me by going to God. And he sees that as a very needful and practical tool in the kingdom of God to enable us to fulfill the Great Commission. In 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 12, the apostle gives us all the gifts. Most of the gifts. One of the gifts that God gives is the gift of helps. Now, that's a big gift, actually, in this church, by the way. A lot of you have the gifts of service. The gift of help. But if God intended us to be able to do everything by ourselves and to be independent and self-sufficient, would he have given us this gift where we actually are called upon to help people? You see how it all plays into the body of Christ. And when we, when we get to places where we need, I can't do this by myself. Well, we're going to be in spiritual places where we can't do it by ourselves. Or we're going to do it poorly. And we need help. And not just physical help. Not just a Bible study. 
but we need prayer help. And it turns out to be an incredibly practical, efficient thing for us to do. When we get to a spiritual place where I can't move this big piece of spiritual furniture on my own. I got, I got to have some help. And I got to get it out of here. I have deadlines to meet. Prayer works like that. Now, if the Apostle Paul is recognizing his need, these are believers that are more immature than he is. He does not hesitate to ask these spiritual kids for prayer help in his ministry. Help me. And don't think for a second that all of those that are plugged into ministry situations in this church, the teachers and the sound booth and those that, that lead in worship and, and the retreats and the Bible studies, don't think for a second that we do not need your help through prayers because it is a kingdom task that requires kingdom tools. The help of prayer. Even Jesus said, you know what? When it comes to this particular task, in that case it was demonic deliverance, you can't just you just can't go and call it out. This is requires prayer and fasting. There are things in the economy of God that cannot be accomplished without prayer. The apostle Paul knows this, and so he asks. He's not he, he understands the sovereignty of God. And that is, you can't stop God from doing what God's going to do. And just because you failed to pray for something doesn't mean God's going to forget to come back and redeem the church because there weren't enough people praying. That He knows that's not how the kingdom works. God's sovereignty does what he's going to do. But he also sees that in his sovereignty, God uses the concert of prayer of his people. That he invites the prayers of his people to work in that realm. And so he says, in light of that, will you pray for me? Because helping prayer serves God. Final quote by John MacArthur. In prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. Thus, the duty of prayer is not to modify God's power, but to glorify it. And isn't it ironic that the Apostle Paul says, help us by prayer. And then there's, again, he gives us a reason behind it. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Give thanks to who? Give thanks to God. The, even the, the prayer is about so that God will get glory. When people see you praying and helping other people by prayer, and they see the benefits of that, and they see the answer to prayer and the strength coming, they raise their eye. It gets their attention and they lift their eyes to God. Could God do that for me? Through prayers, through help. It's designed to bring God the glory. It all comes back to God. So let us see and let us observe the importance of setting our hope and the importance of helping prayer. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.